Hello, this is Everything Else, the FT Culture Podcast. I'm Grizz. And I'm Al. This week, we'll be talking about the Lehman Trilogy, which is a new play on at the National Theatre, 10 years after the financial collapse, looking at the rise and fall of Lehman Brothers. And later, I'll be speaking to the provocative documentary maker, Lauren Greenfield, about her latest film, Generation Wealth. So this is a, a themed episode. Yeah, it's about money, sex, greed, hubris. So the Lehman Trilogy, which is written by Stefano Massini and is on at the National Theatre, um, has been directed by Sam Mendes with a stellar cast of three, Ben Miles, Adam Godley and Simon Russell Beale. And we haven't discussed what we think about it yet. No, we haven't. We've... Suspense, isn't it? It's amazing. <laughs> We've kept quiet and we will keep quiet for a few minutes longer. We went to see it together but did not discuss it during the two intervals. Joining us in the studio will be Brooke Masters, the comment editor, and Sarah Hemming, theatre critic. Brooke, Sarah, thank you so much for coming in. Sarah, last time you were here... You had your football hat on. That's right. We were talking about the World Cup, that great drama, which now has all ended. And not, I think none of us predicted France, so that went well. Well, I did because they were in my sweet state. <laughs> I was very rich after this. <laughs> Brooke, let's start with you. Could you explain in a nutshell um, why Lehman Brothers crashed and why it was significant? Lehman Brothers crashed in September 2008 fundamentally because it was an investment bank that bet very big on what are called residential mortgage-backed securities, or RMBS. What they are is your bank. You loan a bunch of money to people to buy houses. You then take the mortgages and you squash them together, slice and dice them, and sell out slices to other people. But in the late 2000s, people stopped paying back. And Lehman had done this slicing and dicing and failed to sell off all the pieces. And so when people lost faith that these things were worth any money, they lost faith that Lehman Brothers had any money. Lehman Brothers was not a traditional bank, despite the fact we call it a bank. It didn't have deposits. It didn't have access to what's known as the Federal Reserve discount window, which is emergency money. So when people lost faith in it, it had nowhere to turn. And so the U.S. government decided not to open the discount window to it and said, go bust. And so when it went bust, it basically took down or would have taken down the entire financial system with it. But it is seen as sort of the final straw that just sent the world into economic tailspin in September 2008. It's very complex, but also there's an inherent drama in it. You can see why it might have appealed to the, the theatre makers here. Do you think that the play grapples with this complexity? Not at all. Um, it's a, a play which you could like for lots of other reasons. Um, the play never actually gets to residential mortgage-backed securities. The last thing you hear about is somewhere in the 60s and 70s, Lehman is getting into trading. Trading is perfectly valid and had nothing to do with what brought down Lehman. I mean, does it in any way shine new light on the collapse and the kind of the crisis that followed? It reminds you that behind this company that has become a synonym for evil were people who had worked hard and spent their whole lives building something and that it wasn't an inherently evil structure. And I think that's worth remembering because investment banking and, and banking have been so tarnished and people lose sight of the fact that they actually do good in the world. I mean, we have banks for a reason. In that, it is good. It doesn't tell us anything really about the financial crisis. Does it not romanticize capitalism, though? 
Yeah, I suppose it does. I mean, you see these immigrants arrive and they build something. And we are told fundamentally that they're making things happen and helping America grow. But all that's actually true. And I think actually, to be fair, as they get into riskier things, the, the thing they refer to as trading, you get this sense that something bad is starting to happen. So I think actually it's not completely unfair. I mean, about halfway through when Philip says, you know, the flower of our cake is is now money. It's no longer They're no longer just investing in cotton. Is that not a moment when it becomes, it starts becoming something darker? It doesn't seem, if it's just money, is that not inherently sinister? Obviously, you're talking to someone who's covered the banking industry for many years. Financialization and money just to make money is bad. But an awful lot of what they were doing, especially at that moment, which was helping people bring money together and then lend it back out again so you can make a functional economy, is still necessary. So there is this reference to something has gone bad and they've lost sight of the per- that, that banks should serve society as opposed to banks just making money. On the other hand, the thing they were actually doing again at that moment wasn't such a bad thing. And Sarah, thinking about this as a a work of theatre, does it work in the way that it tells the story of of the rise and fall of Lehman? Well, I think what's, as one thing that Brooks just said, I mean, it takes a much longer perspective, which is really interesting because mostly when we think about Lehman Brothers, we think about those boxes, we think about those people, we think about evil, we think about bad, and it goes right, right back, and it gives you a much, because of its scope, it traces this epic story, which you don't expect, and it also tells a story, yes, of good, which you don't expect. And I think as a play, it's a brilliant piece of theatrical storytelling. Just to go back, we should say that these are these are three brothers who kind of one after the other emigrate from Bavaria, yes. uh, Jewish brothers, and sort of set up a fabric shop in Alabama. Yes, exactly. So it starts in this sort of um, deserted Lehman Brothers building, and then in walks Henry Lehman, followed by his brothers, and they kind of create in front of you in that building the little tiny shop they started in Montgomery, Alabama, selling fabric. Then they move on to the bank and they just you gradually see the whole story but what's remarkable about it is its style they don't just do dialogue they narrate all the way through so for instance Henry Lehman will say Henry goes to the door and opens the door that sort of thing and it's it's a way of driving it forward so you can get across these 150 years of history really fast you just go here we are now in in New York and here we are now but it also gives it this sort of saga like feel I think it's like an oral poem it's got all these rhythms running through it I mean that in itself is remarkable when I first read it, I thought, how are they going to pull this off? And the way they put it off is this brilliant stroke, I think, of Sam Mendes of having just three actors do the whole thing. So the three brothers, Simon Russell Beale, Ben Miles and Adam Godley, are on stage through the whole thing and they tell the whole story. So they become all the descendants, all the supernumeraries, all the other people. Mm. And they also create the world. So with the boxes that people are going to put their stuff in when they leave the morning of the crash... They create New York City, they create carriages, they create pianos. So it absolutely relies on theatrical inventiveness. It's not a conventional play at all. I don't think it would work in another medium so well. But is it not an inherently flawed piece of storytelling? I was wondering whether this would be an interesting play Mm. if it weren't a true story. No playwright, I think, would ever construct a family saga covering 150 years, as you say, where the last family member to be of any relevance dies at least 40 years before the end of the play. We lose interest in the family, surely. And it's sort of, well, 
are we not then actually dealing with a completely different company? That, you know? That's the point, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, I would agree. But, the, that, but then, yeah. but, I mean, it's the equivalent, surely, of if, um, you know, Macbeth died halfway in the middle of Act 3. Julius Caesar dies quite early on in the play called Julius And that's Caesar. a flawed play too, surely. <laughs> <laughs> I never okay. liked it. <laughs> no, I absolutely agree. And I actually think that there is a drawback to the play. It's the fact that it starts to wear thin, I think, this style. And as you get to, to the 60s and 70s and we move into trading, we move further away from the original story it sort of speeds up and it get, it begins to feel kind of skimpy and thin and pulled. And despite their brilliance, I think you do feel that and you begin to miss the drama of real close emotional engagement. But overall, I think it's brilliant. And I think that that is sort of appropriate. That's where things started to go wrong. I mean, people do argue that the problem with the investment banks was they stopped being partnerships and people stopped being engaged and they became simply, you know, rent rentiers who sh- siphoned off money. And so in a way, the disengagement does capture what went wrong. I think it's the- interesting because it goes from this kind of family drama and because you've just got these three characters and they're all playing their descendants as a kind of visual family line on mm. stage and you go from cotton, which we can imagine, to rails, railways, which we, we can imagine. And suddenly, if you don't know the financial world, you you find yourself in this world which is abstract and, and hard to picture. And so for me, it, it, I lost interest, I think, towards the end because suddenly the, the things that had kept us going, i.e. the family and the sort of tangibles, were lost. I think it's a contrast to the Enron play, if anybody saw that, which which yes. really centered on explaining what was wrong with mm-hmm. that company. And it is, in fact, one of the best visual examples of fraud I have ever seen. Mm-hmm. And I was waiting for that. Mm-hmm. And I was really disappointed because I was hoping the final act would show us what was wrong. It would kind of be nice if there was one more act. Wouldn't it? <laughs> that think, would make it a very long evening. I think but. Brooke's description of exactly what happened was exactly what I wanted to have at the end of the play. I was like, well, I, I should know more that. about Lehman Brothers. And so this is my opportunity to get it. And it just didn't come. I think it's asking, you know, it's, it's asking how do we get here, but in a really, really sort of big way. And I think I think one of the big questions it's asking is, you know, does capitalism actually contain the seeds of its own destruction? You know, where did this go wrong? Where do we move from people doing what is basically a good thing, you know, selling, making money, making a world, being useful? It's a kind of American um, dream story, yes, isn't it? But when did success become greed? When did that actually happen? You know, why, and why is it necessary? Could we have avoided it? But it's the sort of thing that theatre can actually do, you know. I mean, I think it did ask that, but it, frankly, it could have been a car company. I mean, there was there was yeah. relatively little sense of banking, and you know, they, they do a great job early on of explaining how they become middlemen and brokers. That was a really good explanation for how the kind of job they did was created. It just that final act is just too whirlwind. Like, let's do. 80 years, including, or actually it's more than that, it's it's a, it's 100 years pretty much, and you never get a sense of what happened. I mean, if this is the seeds of its own destruction, show us it destroying itself. Well, also there's, like Al said, there's this character, Philip Lehman, who seems to be almost presented as like a sort of father figure of modern banking, as Al said, he's the one who understands that what they're dealing in is something abstract. But I think he died in the 1940s, so really we kind of lose that thread very early on. and. You know, I'm sure Philip Lehman, were he to be transported to 2008, wouldn't recognise that financial system. Yeah, I think the whole concept is confused because most of it and the most successful bits are about the family saga. But it's also it's about this bank. And I don't think it knows exactly what which one. It hasn't chosen decisively, OK, this is about Lehman Brothers or this is about the brothers who created the bank. It's a, Yes, but it's about how did we get from one to the other, isn't it? I mean, what we're all missing is, although it's very long, we're missing another act, <laughs> maybe. But, um, the, you know, the one that sort of ex- goes into that in a bit more detail. But um, So why do you think we don't get the climax? 
Well, you'd have to ask Stefano Messini that. Who Just run out of steam. Well, I was interested that he spent so much time on the 29 crash because, frankly, mm. you could have taken that time and used it to do the 2008 crash because fundamentally he does show a financial crisis, but it's the wrong financial crisis. Why do we care about them surviving a crisis that they survived? But isn't he saying there, look, we've done it again. I think he was more interested in talking about what got lost than how it was absolutely lost. I think, I think you know, there has been a lot of stuff about what happened to Lehman Brothers, obviously, um, in the last 10 years. And I think he just wanted to take a different angle. So where did we start? How did we arrive here? It's also that it's 10 years ago and, and we've mm. had films like Margin Call, we've had yeah. the Inside Job mm. documentaries, there's been a lot of going over it in fiction and, and non-fiction and if you're taking it 10 years after the crash maybe you have to do something different, you have to give it a different treatment which is what yeah. he was trying to do. Yes, yeah, this sort of long lens, I think yeah. it's longer view and kind of, I think it's quite sort of ambivalent really and I think it would be a much worse play if it was didactic. Do you think I it think lays it's... blame with anybody? Is there a sense that we're complicit in this? I think it asks questions. I mean, I think it's very interesting all the way through that there's a sort of ambivalence. So right at the beginning, there's no doubt that these brothers are admirable. They're industrious. They, they create something out of nothing. They work for the community. They work all hours. However, what they're doing is selling fabric in Alabama. And at that time, Alabama runs on slaves. So they are sort of compromised by their context. That's not their fault. And I think but they're, in a sense, profiting. Yes, but I don't think it's saying, look, these guys are evil. It's just saying, you, you know, we all, we're all compromised by our own context. So I think it's saying, look, look at your, look at, let's look at our lives. I mean, I want an iPhone. I'm not going to think too much about how it was made. You know, I want to get a present to my granny tomorrow. I shouldn't go on Amazon, but I will. You know, I want this aubergine. I won't think about the air miles. I think it's sort of, it does raise those questions. And it's, I think it's good that it's not didactic. I think it's... Um, it keeps changing. You keep changing your mind you where the moral of it is. I think so. I also think the final Lehman brother or the Lehman descendant, whose name is, escapes me, but who went to Yale and who's clearly privileged and collects art Bobby, and gets them yeah, into Bobby, yeah, yeah. who gets them into trading and marries this odd woman. He is clearly set up as the villain, but you never liked him at all. In a way, it's sort of depressing in that you got to know all the other characters and suddenly Bobby appears and is clearly kind of gone nasty without any explanation for why. If he had brought the bank down, it would have worked much better it as a, a play. It would play. Yeah. yeah, it would have worked yeah. much better. He would have brought the bank down. You would have seen the whole thing. And instead, he's dead and gone. And, you know, 40 years later, the bank dies. I mean, that was the part I really was upset by. I was like, I wanted to see Dick Fold, who did run the bank into mm. the ground. I mean, where he gets mentioned in like a sentence. You don't even really see him. I think in, in Margin Call, which is this great film that was made a few years afterwards, Jeremy Irons plays a kind of Fold character. And he's... He's kind of brilliantly like aloof and kind of patrician. And that film is doing almost the complete opposite of this. It's doing the kind of 36 hours as the crash unfolded. This is obviously stepping back and, and doing something different. Something we wanted to talk about as well is, is why, why you think it is that theatre makers and to some extent filmmakers are kind of obsessed with finance. I mean, it seems like unpromising material, yeah, drama, and yet we keep doing it. Well, it's the story, it's the one of the big stories of our times, isn't it? And it affects all of us. So I suppose they go into it and they say, what can we bring? Can we bring something different? You can humanise, you bring empathy, you maybe understand better. You talked about Enron, Brooke. I mean, mm. I think Enron both explained, did explain brilliantly, didn't it, that mm -hmm. bit with the cardboard boxes where it was explaining how they basically hid, hid debt by using boxes within boxes within boxes, which was a brilliant theatrical metaphor. So that became very you know, clear. But it also sort of made you slightly understand skilling, that 
he came of a sort of Faustian character. It made you understand the desire to make money, the greed, the skill, the sort of, and the thrill, really, of the buzz of being successful and being clever. And I think theatre can do that. So it could just try and bring a different angle to it, to a story that has really affected us all. Okay, so to finish up, Brooke, would you recommend this play to your friends and family? It's brilliantly acted. And so if you just want to see a tour de force of acting, it's great. As a thing to understand the financial crisis, or even really banking in the modern world, it doesn't cut it. That's disappointing, because that was the main reason why I went. Um, (laughs) Sarah, would you recommend this play? I agree totally with Brooke that it's an absolutely brilliant masterclass, really, in in, in acting. Their their sort of delicacy and subtlety and wit with which they portray all these different characters. Yes, I would recommend it. I think it makes you think about different questions. I think for people who don't know about it, it it takes this, this sort of much longer perspective. I agree that it runs out of steam a bit towards the end, but I'm really very happy to forgive it for that because I think it's a superb piece of theatrical storytelling. Brooke, Sarah, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. So it's been a week for you of looking at the the underbelly of, of capitalism, is that right? Yes. The other thing that I saw is this film Generation Wealth, a documentary by Lauren Greenfield. And in this film, she's looking at wealth, why we're obsessed with it, the lengths that we go to acquire it and what it does to people and to to family and to society and she grew up in LA and she's particularly looking at LA as a kind of centre of wealth obsession, teenagers growing up in the shadow of Hollywood and LA as a kind of generator of pop culture and taste for the rest of the world. So this film is is a documentary, is that right? Yeah, it's a documentary, it's all all true. She's, She's following sort of what became of the people that she went to high school with, which actually include Kim Kardashian and um, Kate Hudson. So, you know, it was not like a normal high were school. Were they friends? I don't know whether they were friends. No, Lauren in the interview describes what she was like at high school and she wasn't, she didn't exactly fit in, I don't think. She was which, cooler than Kim. She was cooler than Kim, let's be honest. But yeah, I mean, she she went to high school with these extraordinary people and their lives are sort of interesting and sad in lots of ways. It's similar to the to the film that she made in 2012 called The Queen of Versailles, which is about this couple and their family, Jackie and David Siegel, and they're sort of Florida billionaires. They He made his money in timeshare businesses. Also a documentary. Also a documentary. Yeah, I mean, she, I mean, she doesn't make fiction films. Right, OK. Um, like, so, that one up, then I won't have to ask <laughs> Um, keep on asking you if it's a documentary. <laughs> it's all true. Everything happened. No, Jackie and David Seagull are kind of extraordinary people. She's like a former sort of beauty queen. Lots of surgery, eight kids. They're a building real person. real person. She really exists. She's actually an amazing character, totally, completely watchable character. Basically, they're trying to build the biggest house in the whole of America modelled on Versailles or at least the Las Vegas, a kind of interpretation of Versailles. I mean, it's you know it's horrible and then 2008 happens the financial crash which we've just been talking about strikes and their plans for sort of building this mansion in florida are sort of derailed and it's about what happens to them generation wealth the new film has a kind of similar arc but lots lots of different characters great and it's all true So, Lauren, thanks so much for talking to us on the podcast. Thanks for having me. What made you want to document wealth, the the pursuit of wealth, the obsession with it? 
Well, I started 25 years ago, and my first project was about kids in L.A., and I was really interested in looking at how they were affected by this kind of world of wealth and Hollywood influence. And then I kind of moved on to other subjects, gender, influence of popular culture, and a lot of other ideas. And it wasn't until the financial crisis happened, and I was making my last film, The Queen of Versailles, that I started to think a lot of the stories that I had shot since the early 90s were connected and really told a story about the influence of affluence. And I wanted to go back and look at how this kind of culture of consumerism had blown up since the early 90s. It is about wealth, but it's not about the wealthy. It's really about our aspiration to, to wealth and luxury and more at every level. And you went to high school in in California. Can you describe what that was like? Yeah, I mean, high school in L.A. in the 90s was very influenced by Hollywood. I actually lived in London in 91, and I was seeing the show 90210, Beverly Hills 90210 in London and thinking it wasn't that far-fetched compared to what I had seen in high school. There was a lot of excess when it came to, to parties and designer clothes and kids got cars at 16. And of course, not everybody was like that or had the means for that. But that kind of set the tone. And there was an expectation to keep up. And I think, for me, coming from an academic family, I had what I needed, but I didn't have all of those things and kind of wanted that to fit in. And I think that, in a way, inspired the journey. So did you feel like an outsider at the time? I mean, I think um, I did. I think photographers, in a way, always feel a little bit like outsiders, and I think high schoolers always feel a little bit like outsiders. Mm. But for me, I I was coming from a neighborhood where there were like barely any other kids from the school in that neighborhood, and in this kind of world of wealth, and and did what I could to keep up, but knew that I did not really belong in that way. And I read that you started out as a photographer at the National Geographic, uh, photographing, for example, a Mayan tribe in Mexico. Do you, do you think there's a kind of anthropological approach to the way that you've documented rich kids in L.A.? Did you bring something from that? Well, it actually went back earlier than that. I studied film and anthropology um, at oh. Harvard, and I started in social studies, looking at economics and sociology and anthropology. And ended up moving into photography, feeling like I was still interested in how people lived, but wanted to look at it through pictures. That kind of led me to National Geographic, and my first project was a Maya Indian village. And while I was in the Maya, I was struggling with access. I was struggling to understand the culture that I was embedded in. And I started thinking about my own culture in LA and, and how, in a way, it was so influential around the world because it was the source of popular culture and the source of media in Hollywood. And I wanted to go back to my own culture and thought I could bring a deeper understanding to serious look at that. Do you think in a, in a way it can be seen as the idea of the American dream kind of going wrong, that this obsession and ambition becomes unhealthy? 
I mean, in a way, it tracks the, the corruption of the American dream from its original ideals. I interviewed my dad to kind of look at the last generation, and I ended up thinking that these 25 years were not just the 25 years that I had been drawn to the subject of consumerism and materialism, but really represented a fundamental shift in the American dream, where we had gone from a dream characterized by hard work and frugality and discretion to a dream that was more about bling and celebrity and narcissism. In a way, success used to be a kind of outward expression of something, of mm. of contributing, of being part of a community, and it had become kind of success just for its own sake or fame and fortune for its own sake. Why do you think that changed? Do you think it has something to do with sort of reality TV? I mean, media influence has been a huge part of it. When I mm. started this in the 90s, I was looking at the influence of MTV and hip-hop as a driver of material culture across kids from very different backgrounds. And that, in the 25 years, just blew up as there was proliferation of cable channels and then the Internet and reality TV and social media. And our comparison group changed, that we used to compare ourselves to our neighbors who had a little bit more than we did, maybe the person down the road who had a slightly better model car or a slightly better house. As we started to spend more time with the people we knew on television than our real neighbors, we started to want what they had. So keeping up with the Joneses literally becomes keeping up with the Kardashians. One of the things that really struck me when I when I saw the film is that this kind of quest for for wealth, um, which is really, I guess, about sort of a quest for power in the world and and status, it manifests itself in in quite different ways with men and women. And and it seemed like for women, it's about beauty and sex often. Do you think that in a way, the kind of obsession with wealth takes a greater toll on women? I mean, I think in the film, you do see a really devastating toll on women. Mm. I think what you see is people using whatever currency they have to leverage. And how girls' bodies are commodified and how that's a case study for capitalism. From the little girl wanting to be a princess and and kind of learning that her body is her currency when she's small to the teenager who uses her body, her sexuality to get more likes in the social media world to a star like Kim Kardashian who literally leverages a sex tape to fame and fortune to women getting older and wanting to hold on to that beauty that is their power and going to draconian measures, plastic surgery and anti-aging to hold on to that power. And so you see the cost for girls and women of leveraging their body. Do you see yourself as a kind of sympathetic eye as opposed to, or do you see yourself as a critical one? I mean, I try to be really non-judgmental mm. and also critical of the culture at the same time. I'm trying to step back and look at the culture while doing it by getting to know people really closely and trying to understand what makes them tick and what makes them make the decisions that they do. I, In my work, the subjects have always been the truth tellers. They've also been able to be critics in the eye of the storm. And I'm really trying to look at 
why these choices are rational in the context of the culture. And when you're looking for these people, looking for the kind of the people who you might interview, the subjects of your work, are you looking for people who are kind of honest about themselves and who have a, a measure of being able to see themselves? You know, um, that's a good question. I mean, first of all, I think I... I'm drawn to people that I like and empathize with in some way. I, the film follows my own kind of artist journey in life, mm. and you can see how I was often grappling with issues that made me want to document a certain thing, like trying to fit in in, in, in a high school where everybody had designer clothes, and, and wanting that kind of made me want to look at that desire. And so I'm looking for people that I empathize with, but I'm also looking for characters and situations, sometimes extreme situations, that speak to the mainstream influence. I find that because I'm looking at how we're influenced by popular culture, it's sometimes hard to see. It's so all around us. It's like the air we breathe. And so I'm looking for moments and characters and situations that reveal that. And one of the ways you do that in this film is by sort of turning the lens on yourself, actually. Was that something that was uncomfortable? I mean, it was really unusual for me. And in the beginning, I I didn't know exactly where it would go. But by the end, I really felt like this work is about how we're all complicit in generation wealth. And I didn't want people to go through and think this is just about the very rich hedge fund banker or the porn star or, you know, somebody that's not like me. So I also wanted to kind of show how I was also affected by generation wealth. And the movie kind of turns into being about parenting in a way and what we inherit from our parents and the society and what we pass on. And as I started to have interviews with my son and my mom, issues that in a way mirrored some of the struggles of the subjects in the film started coming to the surface. Well, yeah, there's one, I can't remember who it is now, but there's one subject who says to you, you know, your obsession is work. Mine might be wealth or beauty or whatever, but, but you're a workaholic. Was that, was that strange to hear? I mean, I think that was in the interview with Florian Holm, who's a hedge fund banker who yeah. was made $800 million and then lost it all. He was kind of driven by greed, who becomes the truth teller. And that was a really pivotal moment for me because he, who's complete workaholic talked about being on 500 phone calls a day and buying houses all over the world that he literally did not spend one night in. And he said that work was also an addiction. And he looked at me like he knew my story. You know, that made me start to think about that, especially as I was in Germany on the road for a three-week trip on my way to Iceland, trying to connect with my kids through virtual means, FaceTime and the phone. And this film also became about consequences. And I started thinking about how my work affects the people in my life. And in a way, what I came to through the subjects and in my own story in, is that what really matters in life is family and community and the people you have around you. And in a way, it's the biggest cliche in the world. Money doesn't buy you happiness and all you need is love. But almost all of the subjects have their own realization 
about that in the story. But it seems like what you're saying as well in the film is that, yes, it is about family. Of course, it's about love, but it's also about the personal fulfillment that can sometimes seem selfish that comes through work and being really dedicated to work. And sometimes that's quite a difficult thing to talk about, particularly as a woman, you know, that, that, that we're balancing these two things. Yeah, I mean, I think you definitely see in the film me struggling with balance or that imbalance. For me, the work gives my life meaning, and I think one of the things that happens in the in the film is, in a way, we've lost our meaning, that as the values of, of corporate capitalism have gotten stronger and the values of the popular culture have gotten stronger, we've, we've lost the traditional values that used to kind of ground us, values from family and history and religion and, and school and the Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts and our community and those kind of grounding values that, that gave us more of a roadmap for the meaning of life. And so in, in my story, I find meaning in my work and have to kind of balance that with the consequences that having an obsession and a, pa- a passion slash obsession can cost. Mm. I mean, in a way, the moral of the story really is about waking up to what's around you. That in the third act, the characters have insights about what really matters to them, and I do too. And even though I continue with my work and love my work, I still also wake up to my family in a way that does have a positive impact on our relationship and does change my priorities. And that's something that you've discovered through making the film? Yeah, it's the oddest thing, but sometimes I think that real emotional truth comes out through the filming process. It often has, when I've interviewed people like in The Queen of Versailles, when I interviewed David Siegel, he told me things that he hadn't told his own wife. And in this film, I have conversations with my son and my mom that we hadn't had before. And it was cathartic for for me, like sometimes telling one story has been cathartic for the subjects. Mm. And finally, there's a strong sense in the film of sort of the end of days of, you know, of how sustainable is this kind of world. Do you have a sense of what the future looks like? I mean, there is definitely a dark side to the story because I felt strongly that we were kind of hurtling toward an unsustainable future. And that's why I spent several years gathering this work about consumerism and going back and looking at the history of it since the 90s. But I also believe in what I heard from the subjects, which are they all had crises and crashes that then led to insight and sometimes led to change. And so in a way, the the, the movie is about legacy and also agency, that we're, we inherit all of these things, but we do have the capacity for change. Lauren, thank you so much for talking to me. That's it for this week. Lauren Greenfield's film, Generation Wealth, has just come out in the UK. And the Lehman Trilogy is on at the National Theatre until October the 20th. Let us know what you think of the podcast. We'd love to hear from you. You can send us a message at facebook.com slash everythingelsepodcast or an email at everythingelse at ft.com. And for a limited time... 
podcast listeners can save 50% on a digital subscription to the FT. Wow. Uh, indeed. <laughs> Visit ft.com slash offer50. Everything else is produced by Chica Airs. We've been Grizz and Al. And our music is by Fatum. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.